Hi everyone, welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Michael Calori, a senior editor here at Wired, and I am joined by my usual co-host, Wired senior writer Lauren Good. Hello. And also with us is Wired senior correspondent Adam Rogers. Hi Adam, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Glad that we are also senior around the table. <laughs> it's a bunch <laughs> of seniors. Um, today on the show, we are going to be talking about mouths. We are mouthing off, so to speak. Uh-huh. I put that in there. Yeah. Lauren wrote that joke. <laughs> you can claim it. It's yours. I'm really proud of it. We have an allegiance to the tooth. <laughs> oh, no. See, I told you this is not the crowd. <laughs> hey, the tooth will set you free. Uh, all right. Stop, everybody. Later on. <laughs> Later on in the show, Adam's going to be talking to us about the complicated science of brewing the absolutely perfect, objectively perfect shot of espresso. But first... Let's take a deeper look at your mouth, specifically how you clean it. A growing number of companies are coming out with new technologies or updating old staples like the toothbrush to give your mouth a high-tech clean. Lauren, you wrote about this on Wired.com. Why don't you tell us more? The era of the smart toothbrush has arrived. And the thing is, I'm not 100% sure that you need it. I started to notice late last year that I was getting pitched a lot on mouth tech. And I was like, this is so interesting because it's happening in the physical space in the sense that a lot of the everyday goods that we would normally use as part of our oral care routines are now being infused with smarter technology to make your experience smarter. But in the online world, too, the Internet is enabling this new era of uh, targeted advertising and uh, marketing and direct-to-consumer selling that's making it, I guess, making mouth products seem a little bit sexier in some ways. And then when I went to CES, which already feels like it was three years ago, but in reality, it was only a couple of weeks ago at the beginning of January, I noticed I was getting pitched on a lot of different like toothbrushes and stuff. And some of them were radio frequency toothbrushes that supposedly send ch charge molecules to the surface of your enamel. And then another one, I think uh, this one was from uh, Colgate was using optical sensors to measure the buildup of plaque on your teeth. And then this one toothbrush from Oral-B called the IO, which I ended up trying very briefly. It's not shipping until August. That is a toothbrush that is using AI, the buzzword AI, um, to tell you which zones of your mouth you're cleaning and, and how efficient your cleaning really is. And then also I received a package of floss at my desk not long ago. Yes, dental floss from a company called Burst Oral Care. That is like this mouthful of buzzwords, everything you could possibly imagine. It's a distributed company with an entirely remote workforce. They're boasting about eco-friendly, sustainable products. They're a subscription business. They use ambassadors who act as influencers oh to promote the product. Um, you know, it's got charcoal in it. I would I mean, just like I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh -huh, okay, okay. It's venture capital funded. Um, and then I ended up using the floss and ended up really liking the floss. But I was wondering why all this mouth tech was just suddenly being put in front of our faces. Why we were being Shoved asked down our to, throats, if you will. Thank you very much. I was just <laughs> going to say why we were being asked to ingest so much in mouth tech. So I, I wrote a story about it. It does sound like that that package of floss came with some strings attached. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Let's unspool this a little bit, okay? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, there, there, are, there are some connections that, you, that, that are implicit in all of what you just laid out that really strike me. The, the idea, first of all, that measuring some behavior that you do with, uh, with an oral care device, with a toothbrush, 
then tells you something about the condition of your mouth that then has some proxy value for telling you if you are healthy, if you presumably have, have too much tartar, if you have gingivitis, you have cavities, the, the, like the sort of clinical presentations that, you, that, that your oral hygienist tisk, tisks you about mm-hmm. when you go to the dentist. And I don't know, did, did any of those companies give you the, the documentation on that? I'd like, do they have receipts? Do they have papers? Have they done the studies that say, yeah, if you use this, then you have fewer cavities, then you have less gum disease? Because those are the things... Like, we know that's true about fluoride. If you use a fluoride toothpaste, then you have less cavities. That's been shown, and, and people know it. And I know people have other opinions about fluoride in parts of the world, too. But that's a, that's a thing that's a sort of peer-reviewed data. It, is that the case with your AI-powered optical sensing radio frequency <laughs> toothbrush? I'm getting the sense from talking to some of these companies that they're just relying on the data sets and suggestions that have uh, sort of been well established at this point in the world of dental care. So they'll say things like, well, you know, you're supposed to brush for at least two minutes, right? Which is sort of the, just the established amount of time that most dentists agree upon that you're supposed to brush for. Or um, some of the companies I spoke to, and actually one uh, researcher of public health, dental public health, who I spoke to will say, um, yeah, there, there have been studies done that suggest that high-powered electronic toothbrushes are uh, shown to be slightly more efficient at getting rid of plaque um, or helping to eliminate gingivitis over time, but that you can still get a lot of benefit from a manual toothbrush. And so, of course, any company that's making a power toothbrush will say, well, you know, power toothbrushes are better, right, because studies have shown this. So um, with the, you know, flossing or something like that, they'll say, like, well, you know, you're supposed to floss couple times a day, right? You brush and you floss. That's what you do. Um, and I think that they're just, they're sort of relying on, on like the standard sets of information we already have available to us about how we're supposed to address oral care. Then they are necessarily showing that their own products show a certain efficacy that's beyond what you might get from a lesser, a lesser good, if you will. Um, so something like the AI toothbrush, you know, I was surprised by it I was pleasantly surprised by it. It has a, a little display on it that shows you a smiley. It shows you a countdown timer for how long you're brushing for. And then it, um, it has like a bunch of different modes you can set it to. And then it shows you a smiley face or a frown, frowny face, depending on how long you've brushed. But then when you go into the app that it's sharing data to, because of course it's sharing data to an app, that's where you start to see, oh, okay, over time, I'm only really brushing in these zones. It turns out that I'm spending like 71% of my brushing time focused on the front of my teeth and I'm not really getting the backsides of my teeth or I'm hitting my chewing teeth, but I'm not really hitting like way in the back or things like that. And these are just things that like, like I think I know how to brush my teeth, right? And then it turns out that like, maybe I don't. Maybe I'm a fully grown adult who doesn't really know the right way to brush your teeth. Yeah, like brushing your teeth is one of those things that's like you are doing it wrong. Um, everybody should like go on YouTube and look for a video of like exactly how to brush your teeth. There's a lot for kids, but there are some for adults, um, you know, because adults sometimes need to be taught how to brush their teeth properly and like time yourself. And I guarantee you, you're doing it wrong. So these guided experiences though, where, you know, they sort of throw the app into it and the toothbrush talks to the app and tells you a little bit more about good brushing habits. I mean, it seems fine. Right. There are other ways to do that, like just watching a video and timing yourself. But it also feels to me a lot like another one of those great tech land grabs, like for a very, very long time, uh, you know, for the last 20 years or so at, at the onset of the Internet of Things, there's the phenomenon of we put a chip in it where somebody takes something that absolutely does not need to be connected to a smartphone or connected to the Internet and makes it connected to the Internet. And now it's just 
better, mm-hmm. just magically better. Um, this has always struck me as one of those categories. Like we've seen, you know, augmented reality toothbrushing and virtual reality toothbrushing. And uh, there is even one where it's like a suction cup case for your phone. So you can suction cup your phone to the mirror and it shows you how to hold your hand properly and like the proper angle of your elbow as you're brushing your teeth. Like, you know, if this is about making good habits, then it's something that you should be able to use for a month and then set aside and never think about again. So what's the what's like the long term plan to keep you on the augmented reality toothbrush? Oh, it's it's the it's the brush heads. I mean, that's why you're seeing more companies wanting to push electric toothbrushes, powered toothbrushes. It's still a relatively small sliver of the market in the U.S. And so there's a huge opportunity for them to sell more powered toothbrushes. And then they get you into replacing the brush head every few months or so. And that's why. This is the inkjet printer model. I mean, it's the inkjet printer model, model, exactly. And um, you do wonder how much of it is just driven um, almost by aesthetics than it is by a, a true concern about oral care. Because we are living in the age of Instagram where we're constantly sort of, uh, I don't know, thinking about how we're presenting ourselves through these social media platforms. Actually, when I you know, spoke to Procter & Gamble, who um, owns you know, the Oral-B brand, um, they said that like, I think Crest White Strips are some of the most popular, if not the most popular, whitening product um, in the U.S. And so like, a lot of people are just like, they're using white strips, but they're not necessarily taking good care of their teeth because they want their teeth to be whiter. But if you're not actually doing the things you need to do to clean them, then like, how good is that really for your teeth? Mm-hmm. So there's that. The kind of startup ecosystem is is really poorly designed for, for health outcomes at, at some future date because there's all this capital expenditure to build, you know, to put a chip that talks to a phone into a toothbrush, but then also has some position indicator, then also has all the software and UI UX stuff that goes into the app. Like you have to build all that with a lot of money first without really knowing if you're going to have somebody have fewer cavities. We kind of get back to like the real heart, the real tooth of the issue. Is that the head? Is that even work there? I don't know. But um, but these a lot of these products are the root, ex- the root of the, the root, issue. Thank the you. Root. The That's root of we the issue. Yeah. Didn't even really try that hard for that one. Uh, that uh, these things are expensive. So how much is this? Is this uh, toothbrush that you tested in Vegas? The Oral B one has not been released yet, and they have not yet announced a price for it. But the predecessor, which is the Genius X AI toothbrush. That costs somewhere between 180 and 250 dollars, which is okay. really, really expensive. It is incredibly <laughs> inaccessible. I, I spoke to one uh, dentist turned uh, public health researcher who I mentioned earlier, Lisa Barons at UCSF, who studies marginal, you know, soci- socioeconomically marginalized populations when it comes to dental public health, and. I mean, the people that she's working with and researching, they can't afford $200 toothbrushes. And uh, dental care is really something of a crisis in the United States. Somewhere between 20 to 30% of uh, people in the U.S. don't have any type of formal dental care coverage. Millions of people live in places around the country where they don't have easy access to dental care. And what you see is that dental care um, is sort of disproportionately affects lower income populations, right? And then you kind of end up in this spiral where if you happen to be in a lower income bracket where you don't get access to good dental care, you have dental caries, which is some type of decay, which then could lead to tooth loss, or it could lead to just, you know, issues with your aesthetics. Um, It affects everything. It affects the amount of time you're spending away from your job to get dental care. 
for children. It's really detrimental to their schooling and their social experience. Um, it can be hard for people to have successful job interviews if they're feeling self-conscious about their teeth. It's a totally compounded issue. And when you talk about all the problems that surround dental care at a systemic level in the country, and then you and then you go, oh, but if you like, but there's a two hundred dollar AI toothbrush that's going to help you brush better. Um, I think you really need to address that gap that exists too and think about, well, how can you make dental care better for the masses and not just um, people who are like, well, I want the newfangled gadget that I can put in my mouth. What you really want for the most most bang for this buck is to help a lot of people a little bit, you know, with like cheap toothbrushes and cheap dental floss. That That makes a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. But that's not where there's a market. I think the best that you can hope for is that there's some type of trickle-down effect with this technology, that eventually the same sensors or the same, I don't know, same type of mouth guards or floss or things that are just accessible to people with a lot of disposable income right now eventually become more accessible to the masses. And speaking of uh, trickling down technology, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk to Adam about the perfect shot of espresso. Welcome back to the show. Adam Rogers, this week on Wired, you wrote a story about a scientist turned barista who says that he has learned the cheat code for pulling the perfect shot of espresso. Tell us more. Well, uh, the scientist is a computational chemist at the University of Oregon named Chris Hendon, and and he has has carved out, that's the wrong metaphor probably, um, but has carved out kind of a a side career uh, as a what University of Oregon press materials will call him Dr. Coffee. Oh, boy. <laughs> the worst. Mr. Coffee was already taken. <laughs> well, hey, you don't spend five years in coffee medical school for... <laughs> it's the worst of the BBC children's shows, Dr. Coffee. Um, yeah, it's, well, I mean, he, 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 so he's a, he's a chemist and he primarily studies um, electrochemistry, making batteries. And there actually is some overlap. Uh, between that and coffee because a battery is is uh, to some extent a, a closely packed particles that you're trying to move things through and, and that's sort of what coffee is too. Um, so he became a, a like a coffee aficionado. He ended up on a couple of, of uh, barista championship teams which is the, the World Cup of Coffee which is also a joke that doesn't quite work but you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and got really interested in trying to figure out why as he says you would pull four shots of espresso for the four judges and they would be like the most amazing shots of espresso you'd ever have, but they would be different. So you'd nominally be the best espresso shot puller, one of the best in the world. And you still sort of couldn't make each one of those be the same. And he got sort of obsessed with that as a chemist. The thing about coffee is that as a, as a matter of chemistry, it is a, an incredibly complicated flow process. Um, there's this botanical ingredient, the, the, the coffee bean that you, dry, you roast to a different amount of temperature and time, then you grind that so that it exposes more surface area to a solvent, which is hot water in this case, that comes in contact with that surface area for a different amount of time at different temperature, at different pressure. When you're making an espresso, there's compaction that I mentioned that forces the water through. You can have different sized particles, fines versus boulders. There's just a tremendous number of variables that you're trying to deal with if you think about this as a chemical process. And so what Hendon wanted to try to do was not exactly reduce the number of variables. There, there's 
the articles on this are 40 pages of partial differential equations trying to figure out all the different things that can happen when you're making a, an espresso or a cup of coffee. Um, yeah, fascinating stuff. Uh, it's funny because you need the coffee to get through the article about the coffee. Uh, but, but he wanted to, to kind of, in, in a way, do some like metaphoric calculus here, reduce all of those variables to get to a place where you could repeatably make a very good shot of espresso. And by the end of his paper, he Hendon says, here's sort of the way to get to a place where you can make the shot that you want um, and do it again and again. And essentially it has to do with starting with a much, much coarser grind than the real pros would to, to get to, to control either over extraction or under extraction of the flavors that people like in coffee with a lot less time exposed to that hot water and then to play with just that variable of how much water and how much coffee you're using um, until you get to the right set point. So you start with a coarse grind. Yeah. And then that makes sort of watery coffee. Yeah. And then you get smaller and smaller and smaller with the grinds to the point where you get a cup of coffee that you like. Yeah. His process is you start with that coarse grind until you get to a specific extraction yield, which is a, a very specific measure of how much dissolved solids you can get out of that mm -hmm. coffee. And when you get to that extraction yield, you'll have the right number extraction yield, 23% is what they're looking for. That's a specialty coffee association uh, kind of prescribed sure. measurement. The governing body of coffee snobs. <laughs> Coffee's world governing body. Yes. That's right. Um, and, uh, and then once you're there, but it still won't taste good because you won't, because the surface area is not right. The, the grind is too coarse. The, you haven't had enough time in contact with water, but once you're there, you can start to, um, change the grind or change the amount of coffee that you're actually using. Um, because if you, if you use less coffee, that's kind of like using more water because of the ratio. So you get a different extraction and, until you find a place where you like the flavor of that cup. Oh, but you stay at that extraction yield. <laughs> the thing that is what the thing that I I just have a quick question about. So he's not saying this is the perfect shot. He's saying I have found a way to make this process repeatable, so that when you feel you've landed on the perfect shot, this is how you repeat it yeah, without all of the factors that typically go into it. That's right. That's super important. So what what you were talking about is uh, the organoleptic qualities of the ultimate mm -hmm. shot that oh you boy. come up yes. with, and Hold and on, that just is going to Google something. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and and that's super subjective. Well, I guess I would say to um, to to a less. To, to not to someone not as professional about this like me that's very, that seems completely subjective to me uh, if you talked to a, a a person who ran a high-end cafe they would probably say no there's you know you you and i would pr maybe even agree that like that's a bad cup of coffee and that's a good cup of coffee so there's kind of broad ranges of things we say that's not good and that is good but once you're in the that is really good what's good to you and what's good to me might be very different and then uh, uh, and, and then you're talking about something very different than what he's doing, which is to try to get something reproducible. It becomes more important, Hendon would say it becomes more important if you have one of those cafes. So maybe, so because you want your baristas to be able to make the same thing every time because that's what people are arriving for nominally. And because um, if you can use less coffee, if you can use 25% less coffee in every shot, he says that could actually save like over a billion dollars a year to the industry. Um, these are the kind of things that I went and talked to one of the... Um, one of the coffee big shots in the Bay Area about this. And that sort of stuff just makes him nuts. He's like, no, this is, uh, you know, that's yield is something that Folgers worries about. That's not our thing. You can imagine Starbucks worrying about yield. Yeah, more. I'm sure that that part of his report really perked up the ears of big coffee, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, I, and I see you on perk. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, I'm sure that they 
that they poured over this with great interest. So I that's stole a that good joke segue. <laughs> Is there a way that you can use this reproducible process with other types of coffee, like pour over or I don't your standard drip coffee? Yes, it's your Mister Coffee, Doctor Coffee. If only we can find a way for people to <laughs> fall down a rabbit hole for how they make their coffee. <laughs> yes. Nobody's done that before. <laughs> this, uh, this this office especially is full of you know coffee snobs, nuts, kooks, oh, and yeah, we have opinions. We do. We have the capital O opinions, and and uh, so sure, not maybe not his exact methodology for pulling an espresso shot. Not all of us have espresso machines at home, for example, and that makes a difference because you're using very hot water under pressure, a different thing than a pour over or an aeropress. But the idea that you could start with a coarse grind and go from there. And say like, okay, well now I can I can get the coarse grind to a certain level of thin flavor, but the flavors that I like. So kind of dilute, but the but I sort of like the taste, and then start to mess with the parameters in a more controlled way. I mean, sure, if that's how you want to spend your mornings with the coffee, um, none of which takes into account, by the way, where you buy the coffee from or what level of roast it's at, which is a whole other mm-hmm. mess. Of, right. uh, of variables. Well, I particularly enjoy this story because it uh, validates something that I've been telling people for years. Or I, I suppose I should say uh, when people ask me about coffee, it's something that I advise them. I don't just walk up to people and say, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> but anyway, um, when friends ask me about my coffee thing, I always tell them, like, you need a good grinder. You need a better grinder than the one that you have. Particularly because if you just use like a spice grinder with the button that with the blade that spins around, uh, you're just going to get dust and large chunks. But if you use a burr grinder that lets you dial in the grind size, that's ideal, right? Because you can do that. You can you can use um, his method, uh, Hendon's method. You can start with a coarse grind and then make it gradually finer until you're pouring a cup of coffee that you really like. And people argue about. You know, what's superior, whether it's like Chemex or pour over or Aeropress and like really that is sort of secondary to using really good beans and having a really good grinder where you can control its output. I think it's I think it is definitely true that outside of a outside of a food science lab where you can measure extraction yield with reliability um, and, and control for temperature and all that stuff, then the thing that you would do at home, if you really if you were deciding like, no, I got up my coffee game man, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the thing you would do before you would buy the gadgetry to actually make the coffee is, is start with uh, better beans. Yeah. Start with better beans. And then get that, getting, getting a grinder. When I got a coffee grinder, I was like, now nah, my coffee's better. Cause I, yeah. I got this grinder. It didn't, you know, I don't have a lot of counter space in my house. It didn't make the people I share my house with particularly happy that now there was another appliance on the counters, but I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to, to grind yeah. those beans. Yeah, How big are most coffee place. grinders? Uh, they're about yay big. <laughs> yeah. Okay. For the rest of the podcast audience, you know what we'll do actually, we'll include in the show notes links to some of the products that Mike is referring to here. I would, I, think I would say they're about six by six and about a foot tall, six inches by six inches, maybe okay. a little skinnier and, and about a foot tall, 10 inches okay. tall. So that's probably, that's about the size of my, uh, Nespresso little barista machine. Yeah, maybe a little taller and a Just, little mm-hmm. little shallower. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it's important because if you think about it, like if you're drinking coffee, the coffee is the content, right? And the content and the method are two different things. I've always said that it's r- it's roughly analogous to bands that argue about whether or not they re- they're going to record their their album on tape or whether they're going to record it digitally to Pro Tools. And there's like big arguments about that. And like really, what they should be arguing about is are the songs good enough? Because the content is going to determine the quality of the final product. In It's going to have much more influence over the quality of the final product than the method by which you make the product. 
Wow. I just feel like, are, are we in Portland right now? What? <laughs> this is my real beard. <laughs> I, I grew it myself. It is artisanal. <laughs> it's not store pot. Can we, uh, is, is it too much of a, uh, of a record scratch uh, head snap to go from like, but, but how do we make sure that poor people have good dentistry to also here's how to get your exquisite cup of, yes. of, uh, of artisanal coffee in the morning? Yeah, the, sure. I contain multitudes. Okay. Yeah. I would just say just get a, a an AeroPress and use Malia de Oro. AeroPress is 30, 35 bucks, and the can of Malia de Oro ground coffee is like 10, 15 bucks, and there you go. Under $50, and you've got great coffee for like a month. That's a good cup of coffee. It is. All right. Well, let's take another break, and when we come back, we will go through our recommendations. Okay, Adam, you are our guest, so you get to go first. What's your recommendation? My recommendation is uh, Star Trek Picard started streaming this week. I've, I've watched the first episode, and it did all of the things that I needed a new Star Trek show to do, which is to say it, it made me go say, oh, I recognize that, and it made me cry, and Star Trek's back, and Captain Picard's back, and I feel like he's the, <laughs> he's the Starfleet officer we need right now. What has he been doing all these years? He like retired to the vineyard. He's all mad. They, they, Starfleet's not his, not the Starfleet he remembers anymore. And he's got to come back for one last mission. Does he wear a make Starfleet great again hat? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a, uh, um, they, like people sort of, he's a, he's a legend, but there's an interview. There's the, there's the interview with the terrible reporter who, who springs an awful question on him, which is, you know, makes me feel bad because I'm like, I would never do that to him as a reporter. We would never do that. He's Admiral Picard, but but he's he's lost he's lost the faith in the ideals. And of course, the thing about Captain Picard is that he's an idealist, and uh, and so him losing that faith and then trying to get it back is is it's what I what I'd like out of a TV show. So, how do people find it? It is on CBS All Access, which is the CBS streaming service. So it it, it costs some money. Um, Star Trek. Uh, f- sort of famously over the years has been a, uh, a vehicle that TV networks have used to try to drive new modes of delivering television content. Next Generation was one of the first hour-long syndicated shows that was only syndicated. Voyager uh, launched UPN uh, because they know that there are people out there like your correspondent who will sort of do anything to watch Star Trek and it's like, well, we'll make them do this for Star Trek to see if we can goose um, CBS All Access. So Star Trek Discovery uh, is also on that and, and the new they're making I don't know three dozen new Star Trek shows I can't keep up I'll watch them all so you could say that in a way they're boldly going where television has never gone before again and again oh my god I mean you could say that okay did you cry yeah totally I mean and and I and I will judging by what's in the trailers I, I will all the way through it and and partially that's because you know this now becomes a character who who we, we I say we this is a character who Star Trek fans have been with for four decades almost, um, three decades. So it, it, you do feel that relationship. Um, the, the heartstrings on which it plucks are, are more uh, vulnerable. You know, um, I'm looking forward to watching it with my kids. Great. Speaking of heartstrings, Lauren, your recommendation? Last week, you might recall, if anyone listened to last week's episode, that I recommended a podcast with John August called Script Notes, and he had Greta Gerwig on the podcast to talk about Little Women. And I mentioned at the time that I had not yet seen the Little Women movie, the one that was recently released that's written and directed by Greta Gerwig. And I saw it last weekend, myself and a couple other folks here from Wired. We went and saw it at the Alamo Draft House. 
And that is my recommendation. Now, officially, go see the go see the movie. That's it. That's it? Oh, it's great. I really, really liked it. Don't you want to spoil it a little bit for us? Well, uh, letting, anybody who's read the book, it's not going to be, um, there won't be too many spoilers packed into this recommendation, but I Wait, really- Wait, there's a book? <laughs> oh. Yes. <laughs> oh. Google Louisa May Alcott. I'll just oh, okay. leave you with that. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I really like what Greta Gerwig did with the timeline. And she talked about this in the podcast interview with John August, where she said she thinks that movie audiences have a tough time once they see two characters together that are supposed to be some type of romantic relationship. Uh, movie audiences, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, have a tough time sort of disassociating those two people. And then if people end up with somebody else, then like, you're sort of indignant and like, what? Wait, what happened? I thought they were supposed to be together. And this wasn't supposed to happen this way because it turns out our brains are actually quite simple, especially when it comes to ingesting uh, fictional movies. And so when she was sort of reworking the timeline of the of Little Women, the story, the book, she made it so that in the film, um, you know, one of the March sisters sees like one of the male characters first and then another March sister, our heroine, Joe March, sees another male first. And then ultimately those are the ones that they sort of end up with at the end, but that the end has a little bit of a wink to and which uh, the character of Joe March becomes sort of her life becomes uh, intertwined with the life of Louisa May Alcott, the author of the original book. And um there's like a wink in there about marriage and, and what happened to women in that day and age if they didn't get married and how they were considered a spinster and whether or not they could actually make a living for themselves. And and so I, th- I think it's just it's very cleverly done. I think that she, Greta Gerwig did a fantastic job with it. Nice. So, yeah. Cannot wait to see it. Yeah. It's, it's really great. Uh, so my recommendation is a service for buying and selling concert tickets. <laughs> it's called Cash or Trade. And uh, it's a website and it's also an app that you can download. It is really nice because the emphasis is on selling tickets at face value. So you can't scalp tickets on this platform. So if the if the act is selling its tickets for $50, you're allowed to sell your ticket for $50 plus the fees that you paid to acquire the ticket, if any, or less. So you can give tickets away. You can sell them for 20 bucks. You can mm-hmm. sell like a pair for 100 or you could sell it at um, at face value. Um, the fees are also much lower. So if you go there to buy tickets, you're paying a 10% fee, which is uh, much lower than what you pay if you go to a site like StubHub, which is sometimes as high as 30% that you pay as a buyer. And and also, you know, sites like StubHub and other sort of ticket apps uh, will allow you to sell tickets for whatever the market rate price is. So you can sell it for you can sell a $50 ticket for $500 if you want. So Cash or Trade is trying to do away with all of that. And of course, like because of that, it's particularly popular among the hippie crowd, uh, the types of shows where people might be, you know, more left-leaning and communist about spending money (laughs) to see concerts. (laughs) Um, And also the other thing that I like about it is that it is not first come first served. So you put up a pair of tickets and three or four people hit you up for them. You decide who you want to sell them to. And it's not a highest bidder kind of thing. It's just a way of seeing like, you know, you can sort of test to see if the person is really a fan or if they're maybe just buying them so they can put them on StubHub to flip them. You can click on their profile. You can see what other shows they've sold, what other shows they're going to. So it's really like a community experience when you're selling a ticket. It's also much safer than Craigslist. It's much safer than StubHub. Um, anyway, that's my recommendation. What's the incentive to sell other than like, oh, I can't make it to that concert. Is there because you're not going to make any money off it 
yourself. Is there other are there other reasons that a that a fan would have to sell tickets that they had bought? Yeah, you can trade. Uh, so, for example, if the floor is general admission and you're seated in the back and you want to be on the floor, you can you can trade down. So you can say, like, I will trade you my seats for a spot standing on the floor because there might be somebody who's in the opposite situation. You can also trade one night for another. Uh, and because of the community aspect, you know that if, if like you have tickets to the show and that's a popular show on Cash or Trade, you will be able to make that deal. I've been using it a lot over the past five, six months. And I think it's just it's great because it's like a slice of the Internet that is still good and not gouging everybody. That's pretty cool. All right. That's our show. Thank you all for listening. Adam, thanks once again for joining us on the show. Always a pleasure. Thank uh, you for having me. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just I was check just going to make another joke. Oh, what was that? I was going to say thank you, Adam, for joining us with your acidic wit. I mean, acerbic wit. Oh, that's not the same thing. Though, acidic, because coffee. Oh. <laughs> I come on here and I just have no filter, Lauren. That's oh, that's no. what it's like. <laughs> okay. All right, back to the grind. <laughs> The show is produced by Boone Ashworth, and our consulting executive producer is Alex Kaplman. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you. 